This gospel message is brought to you by the Reformed Witness Hour, a ministry of the Protestant Reformed Churches in America, a Reformed denomination that strives to be faithful to the Word of God and the historic confessions of the Reformed faith, also known as Calvinism. In love for our great God, we proclaim the Christian faith and life that is founded on God's sovereign particular grace. As God's Word is expounded, we pray that these messages are a blessing to you. I'm going to look with you this morning at uh, the Gospel of Mark again. Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 13, and that's what I'll read now. But Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea, and a great multitude from Galilee followed him, and from Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from Idumea, which is Edom, Idumea is the Greek word for Edom, and from beyond Jordan, and they about Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude, when they had heard what great things he did, came unto him. And he spake to his disciples that a small ship should wait on him because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. For he had healed many, insomuch that they pressed upon him for to touch him, as many as had plagues. And unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. And he straightly charged them that they should not make him known. And he goeth up into a mountain, and calleth unto him whom he would, and they come unto him. Well, in the verses that we consider this morning, we don't really have a distinct event or even uh, story in in the life of Jesus, but more a description of a circumstance. And what they record really here is the culmination and the summary of the first phase of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee. Sometimes we get the idea that Jesus and his disciples lived together in a kind of a, a retreat in which they just hung out with each other and spent time uh, talking about important doctrinal matters and Jesus answered their questions and gave them instruction. We imagine the disciples sitting with Jesus on a grassy hillside with the birds and the butterflies and the flowers around them and Jesus talking, kind of a a structured preparation, something like a, a seminary training. But if we look at these verses this morning, we see it's quite the opposite. What they describe to us is the chaos of Jesus' ministry. And we get a feel for what a day in the life of Jesus looked like. And I think we can summarize the content of these verses this way. That despite the opposition and pressure of his ministry, and despite his fame and popularity, Jesus never lost the focus of why he had come to call sinners, and to come with compassion for those needy sinners. So let's consider these verses under the theme, the pressures and busyness of Jesus' ministry. Notice first with me the mounting pressures, second the Savior's response, and then third the lasting significance. First the mounting pressures, there are three sources of pressure mentioned in this passage that come at Jesus. There's first the the opposition of the Jewish leaders. That's not mentioned directly in our verses, but we look back to verse 6, and we see the Pharisees consulting with the Herodians how they might destroy Jesus. And that 
is connected directly to our text with the the conjunction at the beginning of verse 7, but Jesus withdrew himself. The opposition of the Jews in verse 6 is the reason that Jesus withdraws himself. So you see here the mounting pressure. Jesus is well known and he's hated and sought after by these religious leaders. Then a second source of, of pressure comes against Jesus from the multitudes who have come to him primarily and exclusively, in some cases, for his miracles. Notice first how Mark describes the quantity or the number of the people. You see this in both verse 7 and verse 8. He describes a great multitude. Now, a multitude is already the description of a a great number of people. But what Mark wants us to see is that this is a greater number than ever before in Jesus' ministry. This is unprecedented. This is escalated. Now it's not just a multitude, but a a great multitude. Mark tells us here where they had all come from in verse 7. There were people from Galilee, a great multitude. Those are the locals. Jesus has just finished preaching in all the synagogues of Galilee, and they've come. But also they came from Judea, he mentions in verse 7, and from Jerusalem more specifically. And then after that, he mentions uh, Idumea, which is further south than Judea. It is the area that's Edom, really. And then from beyond Jordan. So boys and girls, think of a map here. Galilee in the north, and then Samaria, and then Judea, and then Edom, and then across the, the, the river, the east side of the river, they've come from there as well. And then he mentions Tyre and Sidon, which is in the far northwest, and they've come from, from there as well. And so they've streamed in from every quarter to Jesus. In some cases, it's two weeks of travel in one direction, and they've left their, their farms and their jobs and their families to come because Jesus has become a sensation. Now, why did they come? Mark tells us in verse 8 that when they heard what great things he did, they came. He tells us in verse 10, he had healed many with this result that they pressed upon him for to touch him as many as had plagues. So they came for the miracles. These are throngs of people falling over each other just to, just to reach out and touch him. And these surging multitudes, these growing crowds are are part of the mounting pressure on Jesus. There's a a pressure in popularity. In John chapter 6, after Jesus feeds the 5,000, you have something similar. And Jesus says, you seek me because you did eat of the loaves and were filled. And this becomes, this popularity becomes a pressure and a temptation for Jesus. It's the temptation to to avoid the way of the suffering and the cross because they want, in John chapter 6, to make of him an earthly king. And there would have been something attractive to that and easy about that for Jesus, similar to when Satan says to him, bow down to me and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the earth. You don't need to go the way of the cross. So there was pressure. And then in verses 11 and 12, Mark describes another source of pressure when he says that unclean spirits, when they saw him, fell down before him and cried, saying, Thou art the Son of God. These were real people governed in their spirit by an alien presence. These people's minds were not free, but they were possessed by demons and directed by demons. And 
these demons are fallen angels who have joined force with Satan and are sent specifically by Satan to possess these so that they can confront Jesus. And it's as though Satan has arrayed a host of demons against him, hiding in the, the crowds and not just the false teachers and the false disciples. But Satan is there and his forces are there. So what's obvious to Jesus here is that in all the pressures and temptations of his ministry, Satan himself is arrayed against him with all the forces of darkness. And Satan himself is behind all the opposition that comes against Jesus. He's behind the Jewish leaders who, who now want to destroy him. He's behind those who have come only for miracles and want to tempt Jesus away from the cross. So these are the mounting pressures that Jesus experiences. And what we have to see as we try to understand Jesus' response is to see Jesus here on a mission of obedience to the Father and of, uh, of saving souls, which will require the cross and the laying down of his life. The key verse in, in, the, in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister, to serve, and to give his life a ransom for, or in the place of many. And in these pressures that Jesus experiences in his ministry, he must have been very conscious of the cross that was before him and felt the pain of the cross in the opposition and the hatred that was towards him and felt the temptation to abandon the way of suffering in the popularity of the crowds. So how does he respond? And we have the response of Jesus to the Jewish leaders in verse 7. Jesus withdrew himself with his disciples to the sea. When it says he went to the sea, it means he changed the venue of his preaching. He doesn't minister now in the Jewish synagogues, but he creates his own venue on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. And by doing so, he moved himself away from the confrontive environment of the synagogues. The word withdrew here has the idea of protecting yourself, strategically withdrawing. In response to the rising opposition of the Jewish leaders, and especially their plotting to destroy him, he retreats with his disciples to a more neutral setting. Now the question is, why did he do that? And he didn't do it because he was afraid of the Jewish leaders. The explanation, though it's not given here specifically, was that it was not yet time for his death. They plotted to destroy him, but it wasn't time for that yet. And you see this in other places in the Gospels. In John 7, verse 30, for example, they sought to take him, but no man laid hands on him because his hour was not yet come. And I think this shows us two important things. First, it shows us that Jesus is not yet done with the preaching and teaching aspect of his earthly ministry. We know that he's conscious of that because immediately following this, he calls the twelve. And that will be the emphasis of his earthly ministry. He's going to prepare them for, for his death and for his departure. And he has to preach the good news yet in many other places. But second, this shows Jesus' absolute control in all the confrontations with the Pharisees. We, we have seen his mastery, and we see that here again, his absolute control, not only over his enemies, but we could say over the calendar of his life and over the outcome of his ministry. The enemies, the events, 
the final arrest and the death and crucifixion of Jesus are all, we could say, carefully choreographed by Jesus himself. And though it may appear sometimes that the enemies have the upper hand, that's never the case. They're always serving the cause of Jesus, and they're serving his own uh, exaltation and kingdom. Even when they put him to death, they're doing that. And as I was preparing this sermon and thinking about that, it made me think of some of the, the chaos in our society. And even the opposition, the obvious opposition to Christianity and the church and to, to biblical morals. We certainly live in a tumultuous time. And it's very important for us as believers in all this to, to keep our calm, to live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness. To realize that these things must take place as a part of God's purpose for history for this world, and, and that all of these things, including the, the pandemic, the pestilence, are under the rule of Christ and are serving the church and her final redemption, and they're bringing us closer to the day of that redemption and the return of Jesus Christ. And when we're inclined to panic or to be fearful or to try to take matters into our own hands, let's, let's remember the disciples here. There's a lesson that Jesus had to teach them over and over again during his ministry. Fear not, he says, I have overcome the world. Be not afraid, I go to prepare a place for you and I will come again and receive you to myself. All power is given to me in heaven and on earth. Behold, I am with you even unto the end of the world. And we must remember the, the sovereign rule of Christ over all the powers of darkness so that they us serving his purpose. That's summed up for us in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, and I, I think the last three words here are really important. Let's let them ring in our head. And he, and he put all things under his feet and gave him to be the head over all things to the church. To the advantage of the church, to the salvation of the church, he rules all things for the sake of the church. So we have first here Jesus' response to the to the Pharisees, which demonstrates his absolute rule, and and also, and this is part of the next response, also demonstrates his mercy over against the Pharisees. We saw that in some of the previous section. He will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now we see his mercy towards the multitudes, because even though he withdraws from the pressure of the Pharisees, he doesn't withdraw from the pressing multitudes. In verse 9, the great multitude is pressing on him, and he tells his disciples to, to have ready a small ship. That would be a fishing boat, and these men were fishermen. And they should do this, he says, because of the multitude, lest they should throng him. Meanwhile, in verse 10, he stays among the multitude. He doesn't get in the ship. And he heals many of them. And verse 10 tells us that part of his healing was simply that he allowed people to touch him and be healed by that. And we should remember here a couple of things about the healing of, and the miracles of Jesus. First is this, that his healing miracles were not limited to those who believed. But they were used by Jesus sometimes to simply demonstrate his power also over sickness and disease. To demonstrate that he could heal and that he will someday heal us from every effect of sin. 
Think of Revelation 21. No more sorrow or crying or tears. All things are made new. But the other thing for us to see is that the miracles were were not the primary reason for his coming and that they rather uh, confirmed who he was. They, they, in a sense, highlighted who he was and confirmed that God was doing some great new thing in this one who had come. And now with all these people coming from afar, Jesus doesn't disappoint. And this became a way for his fame to be carried back with these people to their homes. People were healed of of every kind of plague and disease, and they, they would take it back, and it would go back even to the Gentile lands. Think of Edom, Tyre, and Sidon. And we see Jesus here with a mind, not just for the, for the spread of his fame, but for the gathering of his elect, even from, from other lands, from other nations, and the drawing of them to himself. He's mindful of that. So we have Jesus' response to the multitudes. Then third, we have Jesus' response to the demon-possessed who bowed down and called him the Son of God. Verse 12 says, He straightly charged them that they should not make him known. Now, different explanations have been given for why he said this. Was it because he didn't want to be uh, identified with the demons, didn't want them identified with his cause? Later, he's going to be accused of, of casting out demons in the name of Beelzebub. Or was it because the witness of these demons would be discredited by their evil reputation? Or was it because he didn't want his fame as a miracle worker to be spread abroad? Could have been any one of those reasons. But more important than explaining why Jesus says this is looking at what he says and to whom he says it. To demons. He tells them, verse 12, that they should not make him known. And really what it demonstrates again is his sovereign power even over the demons. They can only speak as he bids them, and if he tells them to be quiet, they must be, they must obey his voice. And though they were here his most vicious enemies, representatives commissioned and sent by Satan himself, they are constrained at his command and by his command. And what this really does is reaffirms his identity as the Son of God. They say, you are the Son of God. And it's as though he says, yes, I am. And I command you to be silent. So his response to the demons. Now we've touched on most of the significance already as we've gone through this. So I just want to recap and then, and then as it were, step back from the text and ask one final question. As we Recap, we asked the question, and this is the question we've been looking at as we go through the Gospel of Mark. What do we learn here about Jesus? Well, we see here his sovereignty over the enemies and the events of his life. We see here his wisdom, even in very practical ways. We see here his determination to go to the cross and not to be tempted and deterred away from that. We see in that his love as he goes to lay down his life, and that's reflected also here in his mercy to those who are afflicted with the plagues and other diseases here as he heals them. We see here his humility, that this was not about his personal fame, but we also see here his popularity, that Jesus could not be ignored that he demanded a response. And that brings us to the, to the closing question. 
that I want us to think to think of. This question, what will you do with your knowledge of Christ? Or to put it another way, what is your response to the gospel of Jesus Christ? You see, all this fervor and action among the leaders and the multitudes and even the demons demonstrates to us that Jesus demands a response and that you cannot just casually observe and turn away from him. Jesus himself says, if you're not for me, you're against me. And certainly that's obvious here in the response of the Pharisees and the demons. They were pressed by the presence and the power of Jesus to express themselves and express themselves they did in their hatred and their enmity against him. If you're not for us, Jesus says, you're against us. But now what about you? What is your response to Jesus? Or I could put it this way. Why do you come to Jesus? The multitudes came for personal benefit here, for healing. And in doing that, they, they themselves were against Jesus and against the good news of the gospel. And certainly today, there are many who go under the name of Christian who similarly come to him for miracles, some of them. Just think of the ministry of the false gospel televangelists. Give us your money, send us your money, and you'll be healed. Or God will prosper you. So people come to Christianity for health and wealth. But there are also many come who who come with the idea that a little religion and some biblical guidelines and principles will help them. They have trouble in their marriage, so so maybe a pastor can help them. Or maybe they can get some structure here in, in the family, in the home, and in the raising of their children. Maybe some of these biblical guidelines will help them with their finances. And so, so this passage begs the question, why do you come to Jesus? Why do you come to Jesus? And beloved, there's only one reason to come. And there's only one way to come. And that's to come as a broken, needy sinner. Not in the righteousness of your own good deeds, those are filthy rags, but in humble repentance over your sin. To come to Jesus as the one who lays down his life for sinners. To acknowledge that there's no other way of salvation. There's no other way to God the Father than through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. In verse 10 here it says that they came to him when they heard what great things he did. And these great things that they came for were but little things compared to the great thing that Jesus has done and accomplished on the cross for all who come to him by faith and rest in him alone. For salvation. That's the good news that Jesus came to preach. He says, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And I come to give my life a ransom, to lay down my life a ransom in the place of many. How do you come to Jesus? Why do you come to Jesus? Come in faith for pardon. Amen. The gospel message you have just heard was sponsored by the Protestant Reformed Churches through its radio program, The Reformed Witness Hour. We hope that you have been edified and encouraged by this message. If you would like more information about the Reformed faith or the Protestant Reformed Churches, 
Feel free to visit our website at reformedwitnesshour.org or email us at mail at reformedwitnesshour.org.